Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's pod, pod, pod. Cast, cast, cast. Yeah. Uh, I'm Gary Bain. I'm joined by Peter Hart. That's me. Good morning, Peter. And today we're going to be continuing to tell the story of the 16th Durham Light Infantry. And this is called Austrian Dilemmas. Yes, 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 indeed. Yes, now we're indeed. coming to the end of the series, Pete. There's only a couple more. Uh, one more after this. after this one, yeah. yeah. We haven't done this one yet. That's why I said couple. Oh, you are so precise these days. I've noticed a certain element of precision is coming to your character. And we've got a bit of an announcement at the end of the podcast, unless we forget. Yeah. Uh, well, quite. <laughs> what do you think the odds are? Yeah. <laughs> so. The 16th DLI were all at sea. Where would they been? They'd been in Greece. We had that episode last week. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they'd, they'd been in Greece. They'd been uh, suppressing the Elas uh, rebellion or... Uh, Elas or Elas. Elas. Yeah, all of them, all of those different letters that we didn't understand. Now, they boarded a ship, the Ville Doran at Phaleron on the 13th of April. And were they worried? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they, didn't they, really, they wanna, really didn't want to go back to Italy, did they? They, they didn't really want to go anywhere, really, did they? They, they would quite be staying on their holidays in Greece, because they did quieten down in Greece. Uh, so so what happens then? Well, they, well, they, they land at the port of Taranto on the 15th of April. Italy, now, Italy, it was all over bar the shouting. And on the 9th of April, the 8th Army, under the command of General Sir Richard McCreary, had launched a successful major assault which had smashed its way through the German lines on the Senio and Santerno rivers before pressing hard towards the Po River with the intent, intent of capturing Verona. How do you know all that? God, I just read it. All right, yeah. Um, it's all going well, isn't it? But uh, well, there's a, a lingering concern, isn't there? Well, what would the, might that concern be? Well, that the, the Germans had, had provide a fierce resistance on a last line of defence based on the Adige River. Uh, and it was for that reason that the Durhams and the rest of their comrades in 46th Division had actually been recalled to Italy. All right. So and it, this, there could have been one more battle, is what we're saying. Yeah, and this is Corporal Tommy Chadwick of 7 Platoon C Company. A lot of them weren't keen, which is understandable. To coin their phrase, it's a bit late to get a wooden top coat. Ooh. 
Uh, they, they'd gone so long. We just missed going in the line by two or three days. They must have said, there's no future in pouring more troops in. Just leave the ones in or there. So we bivouacked just a few miles back. So they were lucky that they arrived when they did. I noticed Tommy Chadwick changed where he came from. Oh, he, he, was, he was a changeable lad. Now, after a period of route marches, hurrah, <laughs> and normal routine what the lads training, observed during that? <laughs> the main party returned to Taranto and were re-embarked on a coastal ship for the run to Ancona. Now, they then reassemble at the concentration area that they'd been allotted at the village of La Frata, which is near, uh, you probably know this, uh, Bertinoro. Uh, and, and they're getting good news all the time, isn't it? Uh, but basically that... Uh, the, yeah, the Eighth Army, as I say, it's battered its way. It, it, well, no, they've, they've got across the River Po. You often have to go to the Po, don't you? Now, nevertheless, many of the men were still convinced that one last terrible trial lay ahead of them. Now, we've mixed up some of the, the uh, quotes today. I got bored doing the same old people. Same old So people. some people may notice that we're, we're doing different people, but it's, it's a tribute to our acting abilities, our vocal abilities. Oh, yeah, we have many, many talents. And you are going to tell us what Major Alan Hay of A Company You mean says. you worked out that had the enormously long quotes in, so you thought you'd bin it onto me? <laughs> Something like that. Uh, this, this is Major Alan Hay. One of my favourites, I really remember interviewing him in South Shields, where, where he lived, and he said this, they still hadn't officially declared that uh, that was the end of the war. We always felt that we were being held back, that Hitler was going to make a last desperate stand in the Alps. They knew all the passes. We thought... Now we're being saved for this. We've not been given any other jobs. We were just told to be in readiness. We thought, this is our job, to invade the Alps. Sort of a reverse Hannibal. Now, once again, normal training resumed, but everyone was on tenterhooks awaiting the call to arms. Then, on the 8th of May, 1945, at last the great day dawned. What day is that? Victory in Europe Day, VE Day. And this is what, Company Sergeant Major, up... Oh, I see. So what we've done is we've changed it so I'm doing all of them. Is that right, Gary? Not all of them. <laughs> but I love Company Sergeant Major Les, uh, Les Thornton. Uh, C Company, he said this. We were all called together to sit on the grass and we heard Churchill's speech. Hey, European war is ended. Yeah, you can't express it. The rum ration came out. Half us didn't know where we were. <laughs> that night, I issued out all the mortar, green, white and red flares, all the red very lights, and we had a Guy Fawkes night. <laughs> Got the two-inch mortars out, popped the parachute flares in, red flares, white flares, green flares, very light pistols were being fired. Nobody cared. Even shots were fired. <laughs> but nobody worried. Excellent. Now, it sounded like a battlefield, and Ronald Elliot was in a more thoughtful frame of mind as he tried to appreciate just what it all meant to himself and his comrades. He'd found the declaration of war back on the 3rd of September 1939 a bit of a damp squib. Now, he was once again somewhat underwhelmed Very by the common. moment. Remember the Great War on uh, 11th of November? We had a lot of this, didn't we? And this is Private Ronald Elliot of the Signal Section Headquarters Company. We could hear people letting off rifles and machine guns in agony and ecstasy at the end of the war. When it came, it was an anti-climax, actually, something you'd been looking forward to all your wartime career, and when it came, it really didn't give you all of the kick that you thought it ought to have done. It was just as though it fizzled out rather towards the end. They did say that it was as dangerous in Forley that night as it was on any battlefront. So there it was, 
It was the end of the war and everybody was able to breathe a sigh of relief. For the first time, you could feel the pressure was off you. You didn't have this feeling in your stomach that you could be doing uh, going into dangerous situations. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> he's, a, he's been a great uh, bloke. I've really enjoyed He's been a constant throughout, hasn't he? Yeah, it's right through the whole of the series of about 400 podcasts. That this but for most of the Durham's minds, one thing dominated their thoughts. Sex. The need for drink to celebrate. There was an air of sheer euphoria in the air. And once more, you're going to tell us what Major Alan Hay says. It was get your hands on any vino. We had a party. First of all, firing off all the very lights, flashes and signals. I suppose some live ammunition went off. But not officially. But all the lights went up in the air and we had quite a party. It was just a huge laugh, drinking and absolutely relaxing. Those static units in that area, they had had nice camps with flagpoles and washed whitewashed stones uh, who were not even supporting troops. We then sent our pies to pinch all their flags. <laughs> Anything that was stupid, we were very good at. And I was in the thick of it. Wonderful. Now, next day, the festivities continued with a grand... <coughs> you just coughing and interrupt. I'm just thinking of what's coming. Cause, uh... With a grand fate, with each company putting on two sideshow stalls, music from the dance band and decorated Jeep and fancy dress contests. Now, this is one of my favourite moments in uh, in the history of the Durham's. Uh, a lot of you will have admired uh, the, the rather straight-laced figure of Russell Collins. Uh, he was a young, baby-faced lad. And so what do you think the Durham's, uh, what do you think the Durham's decided to do with him? I don't know, because we're going to read a quote, Pete, that will tell us. Go on, Ed. Uh, This is Lieutenant Lionel Dodd of the Mortar Platoon. Harry Minear got hold of one of the locals and borrowed an ox cart, a covered wagon sort of thing. They put on the side, off to Bladen races. He said, well, you two dress up, Russell Collins and I, because we were only young. We borrowed frocks and stuffed some socks in. Mine kept sagging. He was quite the part. Harry Minear got some old hat. And we were all going to the Bladen races. Everybody was drinking everything they possibly could. Later, I don't know what time it was, but I can remember Russell firing a brain gun up in the air. I said, now come off it. It'll only come down on us. What goes up, Gary? <laughs> Must come down. Excellent. That was a lovely reading. It's nice to think of the, the, the great war hero dressed <laughs> Now, in the evening, there was a massive bonfire and an effigy of Adolf Hitler was ceremonially burnt, followed by a communal sing-along of the favoured songs of the day and, of course, more parties. The war was over. They would, after all, be going home. But when, Gary? When? When, Gary? Do they go home? Well, Austria beckons for the men of the 16th DNI and on the 11th of May... They began the long journey through northern Italy. Yeah, they're travelling in trucks. Well, at least they're not marching. Uh, across the Po, the Adige rivers, and they stop overnight Padua, then on, on, uh, Treviso, Udini, and they arrive at Caporetto. Ooh, I've heard of that. <laughs> First of all. Then what happens then? Well, 
There they found a deeply disturbing situation as everywhere there seemed to be gangs of Yugoslav partisans seeking to establish control over this area of Italy for the regime headed by Joseph Tito, who was the leader of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, that was the KPJ, who had also led the Yugoslav guerrilla movement following the German invasion of Yugoslavia in 1941. So we'd have been supporting him and really on his side, would we? Well, we'd have been on anybody's side that helped us, really. And then at the end of the war, yeah, communist bastards. Well, he'd taken over uh, power in Yugoslavia, but he sought to extend his control over the border zone with Italy, an area that had long been the focus of dispute. The partisans themselves were an intimidating bunch. And this is Lance Corporal Ronald Elliott of A Company. We were there to deny the Yugoslav partisans the opportunity to move any further. We had head-on confrontations with Tito's people. They looked like soldiers, well, partisans anyway, tough, very antagonistic, bristling with weapons. They had bandoliers of bullets, half a dozen of them strung round their necks. We were there, sometimes with our rifles, sometimes not. We had no intention of fighting any more. As far as we were concerned, the war had finished. Nobody was going to fire a gun in anger again if they could help it. We were eyeball to eyeball. And the position got quite nasty for a while. It did, uh, and a lot of them talk about it. But in the end, the, the Yugoslav partisans were—they they didn't push it too far. They were—they were more trying to infiltrate into the disputed uh, area, uh, and and they were also trying to stop the Italian partisans who were also around. So that you've also got this going on. It's all complicated. Uh, but then, then they're, they're sort of the, the Durham's are whisked away again, uh, so they don't get involved in this anymore. Why is that? Well, because that night, just as they were settling down to sleep, orders came that they were to push on next day at 0200 to get across the Alps and into Austria as quickly as possible. Sounds a tough journey. Well, it did prove to be tough, with a long chain of lorries heading up into the mountains over the Caporetto Pass and crossing the Austrian frontier at about 0530 on the 14th of May. Now, they then push, they, they get to Villac, which is, you know that, Villac, I presume, a decent-sized town, decent-sized town, um... This is enemy territory. What do we do when we're in enemy territory at that point of the war? Well, well there's a, a non-fraternisation policy with civilians, which was at first strictly enforced. Now, as they drove through, the evidence of the German defeat was all around them, for the roads were packed with dispirited German soldiers plodding along on their road to nowhere. I'm on the road to nowhere. They'd gradually be gathered up and put in prison of, prisoner of war camps. So, brief stops. The Durham's carry on motoring. Uh, they're, they're heading basically northwards. If you can picture the map of Austria in your head. Which Gareth, we could put up. Will we, buckery? Via uh, <laughs> Klagenfurt. They can look on the internet. Klagenfurt. You've been to Klagenfurt, I presume. Uh, on to Unsmarked. How am I doing these complicated German names? Uh, and then uh, to a temporary demarcation line. Uh, who would that demarcation be? Was it the Germans? Was no, that it the was Austrians? agreed with the Russians along oh, yeah. the Mur River. Then, then something happens, and uh, this is this this is there's no room for anything here. This is going to be awful. This is this next bit because Alan Hay is given an urgent task, and he has to backtrack back across Austria. And this is what Major Alan Hay says. At about two o'clock in the morning, I was awakened and told to go to battalion headquarters, ordered to take my A company with D company and given a route to Bleiberg. I said, but that's the way back from where we just come. They said, yes, there's some trouble there. Wow. What trouble is this, Gary? Give us a brief outline. 
Well, the crisis in the uh, Bleiberg region originated from the presence of large numbers of both Croatian and Yugoslavian forces, which was creating a great deal of tension and the potential for large-scale violence as the two sides nursed mutual hatreds originating in their respective roles for and against the Nazi invasion of Yugoslavia. Yeah, the Croatians have been pretty pro uh, and on the side of the Nazis, and we've already said what the Yugoslavians were, yeah. Hay was told to report to the headquarters of the 38th Irish Brigade in Bleibergschloss, where he was given a background briefing and told he had to somehow defuse the situation. Mm. Mm. Now, above all, he was to prevent a clash between the huge number of Croatians who had gathered in a nearby valley and the Yugoslav partisans in the surrounding woods. Why were they so bothered about this group? Because there's lots of these gatherings. Well, in amongst the Croatians were some prominent leaders whom the Yugoslavs were desperate to capture. Now, Hay went to uh, judge the position for himself, and this is once more Major Alan Hay. I was on this high ground looking down this valley at this vast mass of people with vans, horses, cows. Cows even blood. Can you take your cow with you? Uh, civilians, troops. They could work. They could have been well, well, well. well how many do you think? 200,000 erecting bivouacs and settling in. I said to Major Ronnie Sherlow, take up positions. That's the other company. Don't do anything, but just spread yourselves around so these people can see you to show that they're surrendering to the British, that they were, <laughs> they were then on British territory. I didn't know where the actual border was, but they had come to surrender to the British to get away from Tito's troops, who were out to uh, annihilate them. I didn't see many of Tito's Yugoslavs to start with, but once we came, they seemed to us to come out of the woods and almost surrounded us, a scraggy-looking lot with lots of weapons and bandoliers. They were firing over the heads of these crowds for no reason at all. They weren't shooting to kill, they were doing it to intimidate. Whilst nobody spoke English, they wanted to know if we brought them food and cigarettes. The jugs, Tito's lot were known as jugs, started to take up positions between us and the Croatians. And there were a lot of them. They outnumbered us. So they're outnumbered by the Croatians. They're also outnumbered by these heavily armed Yugoslavian partisans. Uh, This sounds dodgy to me. Yeah, and hey, he hurried back to report to Brigadier Pat Scott at the Schloss. The only other British forces in the area seemed to be a battery of four guns and a few armoured cars from the 46th Recce Regiment. The rest of 38th Brigade was already occupied in establishing a POW camp for the surrendered Cossack Kolonov Brigade. Yeah, we'll come back to that, Gary. Yeah, we will. Now, there was a complication. Unknown to Hay, Brigadier Scott was under instructions from Lieutenant General Sir Charles Kitely, who was the uh, commander of the 5th Corps, to secure the surrender of the Croatians to British forces, but then to return the Croatians by deception to Yugoslavian territory. Now, this is this this is all extremely controversial, and there's been no end of trouble about it, uh, particularly uh, about 10, 15 years ago when, when it all burst into the, the press. It, it, yeah. Well, what, what, what is the underlying fear? Um, that, that, well, they, there was a fear of annoying the Soviets or indeed their Yugoslavian allies and therefore starting World uh, War Three. Now, if Alan Hay expected some advice or assistance from Scott, he was soon disabused of the notion. Yeah, this is what Alan Hay says. In the Brigadier's own words, it was a complete donkey's breakfast. What was he expected to do? 
We've just got to play this and, and see it. We can't wish for this or that or the other. Let's hope that this works. <laughs> Define this, notice, Gary. <laughs> we moved down into the valley. All this time, the Yugoslavians were pestering us, threatening, and just being thoroughly objectionable. We spread ourselves uh, among the woods to, to just see what happened next. No sooner had we done that than the civilian refugees started to come across and wanted to talk to us, waving bits of paper. Everybody seemed to be a doctor, a professor, with papers. There were women with kids, nice and respectable, pleading with us. I said to them, it's going to be all right. Darkness came and then Tito's lot were coming down and raping the women. The screams among the night, the shots, it was quite unnerving. There was no rest for us. That's terrible. Now, they moved along the valley, assisted by the armoured cars from the 46th Recce Regiment. Next day came the formal surrender of the Croatians. Now, what followed was a disgrace to everyone concerned. But what could they do? It's very easy to criticise, but difficult to think of a course of action that avoided abandoning the Croats to a terrible fate. Yeah, well, they're outnumbered. Uh, it's difficult. This is what Major Alan Hay says. This is a long quote, but I think, I think it really gets it across. After a while, we saw some white flags going up from the Croats. Yes, they were going to surrender. Word was passed through the crowds, and you could see the bivouacs coming down. They were marshalling themselves. There were soldiers on the outside of the road piling up their arms. It was very slow. It took a lot of time for the word to get round. But they had no method of communication other than by word of mouth. I took our men back from the edge of the woods, a position I didn't like at all, back to the hill where we first stood on. Tito's lot were down in the village about half a mile away. We could hear them roistering and singing. We didn't go anywhere near them. By this time, a flagpole had been put up behind us and more of our lorries were stationed behind it. The Union Jack was flying. All for show. These Croatians were getting themselves organised. The order was that soldiers would line up five abreast on the, on the side nearest the woods, the civilians would line up and they'd march down this Blyberg road. After a while, the columns started to move down the road with their horses, carts and animals. Just before they got to the road, where, where it bounced off to Blyberg, Tito's soldiers got amongst them and started to pitch everything they had from the column. The Croatian soldiers weren't armed. They told them to leave everything. Those who didn't were attacked and beaten. There were no actual shootings out of hand, but shots were being fired to intimidate them to leave everything. The Yugoslavs were in full command. We had nothing to do with it. I didn't understand the language, but it was being put to them that you do not take anything with you. They looked really dejected, and to make matters worse, it started to rain. It was really pouring. The road went straight on uh, to Klagenfurt, but they branched off round Blyberg village, swung round and went back across the Yugoslav border. We were standing there and somebody said, I thought they would be going straight up there. Oh no, this is the route they're taking them. Well, I frankly didn't know the geography of the place. By this time, word had passed down the column that they were going straight up to Klagenfurt. There was absolute panic. Then people started to break away from the column, to run into the woods, run back towards the border. That's when there was a certain amount of shooting to get them back. There were some casualties and some escaped. We had fought a war, fighting Germans. We'd fought eyeball to eyeball. That was warfare. But this was civilians. It was horrendous. There we were, soldiers, and here we were, standing spectators. There was nothing we could do for them. We were totally outnumbered, and my instructions were not to do anything provocative, unless we were personally attacked. Those were my instructions. It was traumatic, 
I'm still sickened to this day. And remember, that's 60 years later. So they thought they were going straight up to they thought they were Clegg and Furt, and they took a diversion back into Yugoslavia. I'm not sure. I think actually, I, I'm, uh, I'm not sure of the geography myself. Like uh, like Alan Hay, I don't really understand. Basically, they thought they were staying in uh, uh, um, uh, Austria, but they went across the border into Yugoslavian territory, and and that that's the point that you know. Uh, perhaps people can. I think he gets confused. Uh, he thought they were going to Klagenfurt. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, we'll take a short break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, by this time, the whole battalion had arrived and was based back at Bruckel. Here, they assisted in rounding up the Cossack Kononov Brigade, who we mentioned earlier briefly. He did. Uh, now, this is going to be just as bad. Yeah, it's another unsavoury business because it results in cause because it results in the forcible disarmament and repatriation of the Cossack troops to the Russian sector. But Cossacks are Russians. Yes, but they've uh, been fighting. For the Germans. Now, Laurie Stringer was involved from the start, and this is Major Laurie Stringer of B Company. We were responsible for rounding up and disarming the Cossack Kononov, Cossack Kononov Brigade. They had a unique history as it consisted mainly of Russians who the Germans had persuaded to fight for them against their fellow countrymen. As soon as peace was declared, it is to be understood that Stalin showed great interest in this particular brigade and wanted to ensure that they would be returned to him, lock, stock and barrel. They started to come into a cage that I had constructed in which they were to be rounded up until the next move took place. We handled something like 3,000 Cossacks a day, together with their horses and their camp followers. As the Cossacks arrived, the majority of them presented a rather picturesque picture. They weren't aggressive, they were mounted, and many of them were wearing flowing cloaks. They looked quite dignified. I stood at the gate of the POW cage, and the officer in charge of the whole party stopped his horse, and I demanded that he handed over his sword. He wasn't at all pleased about that, but I was perfectly within my rights. I still have that sword as a memento. Now, again, these Cossacks have no, or Russians, have no idea what's happening, do they? And the mood in the POW camp is quite jovial. Uh, they just don't know what's going to happen. And this is what Major Laurie Stringer goes on to say. They were well behaved. They had a band and sang very well indeed. They lit fires at night and danced around the fires. No problem to us at all. We had searchlights which played on the cage. 
There was no attempt at any escape at all. Lorries came, provided by the division, and these were loaded up with these Cossacks, and they were taken away. Many of them still under the impression that that was the commencement of their journey to Canada. That's what some of them had been told. I'd heard rumours, and I was very unhappy about the whole situation. I know it is the subject still of a lot of dissension and disagreement. Neither my men nor I were quite certain what was going to happen to these people, but at the back of our minds was a feeling of great concern as to what might happen. The lorries were driven to the banks of the River Drar, which was the line of demarcation, passed over the river, then emptied their cargo on the other side, and the lorries came back. We heard some of these poor fellows committed suicide on the way over the bridge. When you're in the army, you have orders, and those orders come to you from higher command. You obey those orders. There's no question of you questioning those orders. I was in that situation. It was the unhappiest episode in the whole of my military career. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that this point, but remember what he said there. Now, now what happened then, uh, the, 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 this handover to the Russians, the other side of the River Drow, it's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? It is. Uh, particularly for those Durhams that were involved. Now, to the Soviets, the Cossacks were nothing more than traitors, and they showed them no mercy. Tom Lister was one of the lorry drivers. And this is what he was. Uh, this is what Tom Lister says, Private Tom Lister. It was really quite heartrending in some ways. A lot of them were good soldiers. A lot were forced to serve under the Germans. They had the choice of serving under the Germans or dying. A number, a number committed suicide rather than be handed back to the Russians. They knew they were going to certain death or harsh imprisonment. It appeared obvious to me that the majority of them weren't going to last long because as soon as they got them out of the back of the wagon, they used to be kicking them, pushing them, battering them with the butts of rifles, driving them in. They would be shouting and pleading with you not to hand them over, but you had to do what you had to do. It was Allied policy to hand them over. And handed over they were. Hmm. Now, another witness was uh, James Corr, and he says this. This is Private James Corr of B Company. I went away on the bike with them, partly from curiosity. When we get to this big high bridge where we were due to hand them over to the Russians, they realised they were going back to Russia. From a 100 yards away, I saw them diving over the top, killing themselves. I turned and came away then. It was a betrayal as far as I was concerned. Now, there's no doubt. Uh, what would you think the overall attitude of the Durhams was to these Russian lads? Well, a lot of them would be deeply compassionate to the terrible plight of the men. After all, they were only following orders. Now, such a defence never resonates well, especially not in the aftermath of the concentration camps. But what else are they going to do? And, and you know, uh, I don't want to draw too much out about this but what else could they do it's one of those awful things that happen isn't it when warfare sometimes you can't do right for doing wrong and this is i mean they weren't in the right no and amidst the misery of these betrayals there was the strange juxtaposition of the story of the hundreds of horses gathered up by the 16th dli from the cossacks and the various german units many of whom still relied on horsepower for logistical support so what happened to the horses well the horses they're rounded up and they're kept in pens where they were an irresistible <laughs> oh, temptation <hang> <laughs> to soldiers brought up on western cowboy films at their local cinemas horses not any other sort of animal and once more you're going to be 
Private Tom Lister of the MT section. I wasn't by any means a trained horseman, but everybody that could find a horse that seemed reasonable used to clap a blanket on, fasten it on with some webbing for a saddle, a couple of bits of rope for reins, and ride around like cowboys. It's a beautiful part of the country, and virtually everybody was riding around on horses. Cowboys. Cowboys. Yeah, that's uh, uh, the the, uh, way you pronounce cowboys in Austria. All right. Now, many of them promptly fell off and they gave up, but others became proficient and the horses were even used on patrols. And the officers had races, you know, horse races. Yeah, good good fun. Didn't last, though, because they're all gathered up and handed in. uh, And once again, they become an infantry. That's the brief history of the 16th DLI cavalry. (laughs) Now, at this stage, the non-fraternisation orders were still having an impact and it was difficult to establish good relations with the local Austrians when they weren't allowed to speak to them. That does make things a bit difficult, yeah. And, of course, the Austrians had been the enemy. They were. However, in the absence of any active resistance, on the 15th of July, the non-fraternisation orders were lifted, which reduced any incipient tension and allowed a more natural relationship to develop with the Austrian civilian. Yeah, uh, so uh, 23rd of July, 16th July, they, they moved to the Wilden area. Now, you, you'll, you'll know this is in the Styrian region. Uh, oh, I did know that, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they take that over from the Soviets. How do you think they're received then by... I've just kicked my coffee. you just kicked your coffee over, yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. I'll have to mop that up later. It's all right. Polly won't listen to the podcast. That you'll never know, except for the stain. Now, they took over from the Soviets as part of the arrangements negotiated at a higher level under Operation Fanfare. The departure of the Russians meant that the British were received by some Australians, by some Austrians, (laughs) as liberators, with reports of flowers strewn in the streets. Uh, so the battalions are strewn round, uh, the companies are strewn round Wilden and the neighbouring villages. Uh, uh, and uh, there was uh, there was a, a little friction in the initial allocation of billets. And this is uh, Major and uh, Major Arthur Vizard. We really liked Arthur Vizard. He was a cockney like yourself from Middlesex. And he said this, uh, we go off on the wrong foot as, 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 as you go into somebody else's country and into their towns because you had to billet the troops. This meant the old story of doubling up. You go into a house, through the door you'd go, then, without even asking, you'd walk up the stairs, look at the number of bedrooms and say, right, there are 12 rooms in this house. You have six, we have six. It doesn't get you off on the right foot. When the grandma has to be moved out, carried downstairs and put in another room. It all causes a certain amount of resentment. (laughs) But this didn't last very long because the British soldier, with his unbeatable talents for getting to know people, whether he's instructed to or not, meant it wasn't long before a much more friendly atmosphere prevailed. And he he mentioned that about Greece as well, where he said that they've got an ability to adapt. Yes, he did. Now, uh, you've got us in trouble before. I'm just going to point out Middlesex Cockney. Yeah. Just mentioning it. I'm just saying that I'm come from the north of England and every, every, every Londoner of every sort is a wanker. Yeah, the clue's in the word Middlesex. Middlesex, London. Right. Gradually, the atmosphere warmed up as both sides found that the other was not as bad as they might have feared. Now, in contrast to the former Russian occupiers, the British soldiers appeared relatively benign and they were willing to help the Austrians wherever they could. Yeah, there's a story I missed out, but it's in the book. 
uh, which is <laughs> they're helped out by uh, the, the, the the local uh, distillery Brewery. was broken. And do you know what? The, those those Durham lads were willing to work day and night to fix that distillery. What what do you think of that, Gary? Oh, it's it's admirable. It is brings it warms the cockles of your heart. The 16th DLI still had work to do as they were required to send out patrols to search out and detain former Nazi figures that had been identified from intelligence briefings. Yeah, 30th of July, there's a bit of a change. Uh, the 8th Army's broken up. Uh, and what what's the new army of occupation to be known as? Not the 8th Army. What was it now? Oh, it's really imaginative. You ready for this? Yes, yes. What is it? British Troops Austria. Wow. Or BTA. BTA. <laughs> now, then came the news of the dropping of the atom bomb on Japan on the 6th of August. And this is Private George Bland of the Carrier Platoon. I was listening to a cricket match on the radio. Then this thing came on about the atom bomb. I went in to see my mate. I says, hey, they've dropped this bomb in Japan and it's cleared the decks, cleared the town out like. He says, ah, oh, it'll be a play. Nobody had heard of an atom bomb. That was a wonderful Geordie accent you just uh, they gave us. It sounded so... Oh, I thought it was Welsh. <laughs> Could have been, couldn't it? Now, 13th of August came... 15th, uh, 15th of August. But eyesight, eyesight. 15th of August came... I should have known historically, I suppose. Came the victory over Japan Day. What, what, what's, what's that? Oh, that's imaginatively shortened to VJ Day. Ooh. And at last, the war really is over. Uh, and the, the, there's no... What do you think many of the men feared as they were in their Austrian billets. Well, they had a fear of being sent to fight in the Far East. That's now gone. That's not going to happen. But for the Durhams, nothing much changed as they continued their patrols and kept fit with keenly contested sports days. Sports days. Uh, more and more men are being sent home on leave. There's various leave schemes, Lea, Python, which you'll perhaps explain, but... Probably not today, and we'll have a whole podcast on that. Um, and the first uh, demobilizations begin trickling men out, uh, and uh, to such an extent they're reorganised as a three-company battalion. Then they're given an honour. What honour is that, Gary? On the 9th of October, they are honoured to be the first unit from the 46th Division to be chosen to act as garrison troops in Vienna. Now, this is a... a well, it's it's a complicated situation. Basically, the city's divided, a bit like Berlin, isn't it? Yes. Uh, four zones, British, French, American and Russian. And each month there's a new supreme commander of the of the city uh, from one of these four powers. Uh, and, and, and that nationality forces provides the guards for the separate, this is really complicated, international area of the city. So now on the 15th of November, General Sir Richard McCreary became Supreme Commander. Uh, that's taken over the Yanks. Uh, and uh, the Durhams provide the required guards. Uh, now, that this is a bit of an honour, is it? Well, it's certainly perceived as an honour and every effort's taken to make sure they look the part. And this is Lance Corporal Tony Cameron of A Company. We were kitted out. An issue of different type of battle dress. More like the Yank type of stuff. Where ours was a rough khaki, theirs was finer like Surge. They fitted us all up with this fancy battle dress. We, we pressed it and we put our Africa Star ribbons up. Cleaned up, polished and shined rifles, cap badges and everything. My guards were 24 hours on, 24 
24 hours off at the main building where the four powers occupied. There are offices for the Yanks, the British, the Russians and the French. We had a 12-man guard there, myself and Sergeant Bert Scully. We had two sentries at the front of the main building. They were ceremonial and we had to do a, a drill similar to what the guards do at Buckingham House, or Buckhouse as he called it. I used to march the two sentries out to change them at the two sentry boxes. All the civvies used to stop and have a look. There were two entrances at the back where the sentries just had to stand at the door with a pistol on their belt. Fabulous. Now, Vienna was a bit of a mysterious place, wreathed in a sort of romantic, gothic, noir darkness. Ooh, you purple prosing again, Gary. Now, the British still had one inestimable advantage. Uh, they were lovely. Uh, or they weren't Russians. They were lovely. <laughs> and uh, this is Lance Corporal Ronald Elliott once more of Headquarters Company. The Austrians were very pleased to see the British, the Americans and the French. Everybody's always pleased to see the French. Yeah. Uh, that's me, not Ronald Elliott. <laughs> we got on very well with them. It was seedy because there was the black market about. And if you've seen The Third Man, that's exactly what it was like. It was an odd mixture of joie de vivre mixed with this seediness. They were short of money and the occupying troops did have the wherewithal. So there was a lot of bartering going on and black marketing activities. They were starting up the opera and the music of Vienna. All of the spectacle was returning. I first saw Deflader Mouse there and one or two Austrian musical concerts. It went along with all sorts of criminal activities, nefarious activities. We never spent any money in Vienna. We had our rations of cigarettes, chocolates and soap. And we used to give them to an intermediary, one of the blokes who was a Mr. Fix-It. He was one of the lads, a headquarters orderly. He could get you anything. And we never paid for anything. We were happy to have somebody else to do it for us. We didn't want to get involved with it. We all felt it was immoral. That's why we didn't want our own hands to be sort of blackened with it. So they gave it to this bloke yeah, to do it for them. It. <laughs> I want a high moral stance to take. I'm impressed by that. Now, the uh, Durhams were slightly apprehensive of the Russians. You're slightly apprehensive of the Russians. You, fed a whole, you were a Cold War warrior against I was. Them. I was very cold at times. And uh, a combination of awareness of all that they'd done to win the war, coupled with a growing awareness of the political schism that would uh, become the Cold War and a revulsion at the stories they heard of brutality civilian to civilian populations who were in the path of the Russians. And this is Lance Corporal Tony Cameron, A Company. We never went in the Russian sector. We never went in any of the other sectors. We stayed in the British sector. That was our orders. The Russians were supposed to stay in their sector, but they didn't. You get the odd ones coming across the Danube, and they'd all, all, they all carried bloody small arms, normally machine guns. Often you'd hear a bloody burst go off. The Russians getting drunk, and they'd rattle off a few rounds. But they never had any trouble with us. We stayed out of trouble with them. It was only common sense some of them some of the others did go into other areas but that was him and he could only say what he did on the 15th of november control of the international area was passed to the french shortly afterwards the 16th dli were relieved by the second hampshires and returned to their billets in wilden now um they're, 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 what one thing that's in common, we, we did the 54 fars, we did the, uh, the uh, South Nazi what, what, what's it? What does every sort of wartime story like that have in common, would you say? 
Well, that uh, peace brings nothing but an anticlimax with everyone marking time. Their thoughts concentrating on demobilisation and a return to real life. There's something else it means, Gary, something close to your heart. It's a return to parade ground, peacetime soldiering. And this is what left Lance Corporal Ronald Elliott thinks of that. We were getting back to peacetime army standards. You could not impose the original pre-war standards of discipline because people that have been through the war just wouldn't have stood it. But you were returning to something fairly close to that, as close as one could do with a civilian army. You were back to parades, the old mountain of guards with all the bull. Everything had to be cleaned and polished. Yeah, you're well polished at times. And sometimes clean. Yeah. Now, uh, week by week, what the, the, the 16th DLI sort of dissolves before their very eyes. Uh, the younger ones, what, what happens to them? They're sent off to serve with the first DLI who are in Greece. So that's where they, they go and finish their time in the army, isn't it? Yeah. But a lot of them, they didn't feel the same family connection with these strange Durhams. Whoa. But most were being demobilised as their number came up. And that's the system, everything, you were given a demob number and it's in order. So what does Lance Corporal Ronald Elliott say? There was always the fear of losing friends that had been forged over many years in difficult situations. I had a number of friends in the signals. Gradually, the older, more senior members were leaving to be demobbed. You were saying goodbye to people. One by one, you would be losing friends. It's, it's, it's quite a sad time in some ways. In a way, they're going home. Uh, yeah, but the battalion's breaking up and that friendship is being lost. And those friendships were sometimes closer almost than the families. But and, and but remember, they're going home to resume their real lives. This was the freedom that they'd all sought and arguably fought for. Yeah, and this is uh, Major Arthur Vizard, headquarters company. He says, The shrinking process continued throughout January, releasing them all the time. We were losing officers. That's January 46. We were were losing officers. Many of the younger ones were on higher release groups. They were going away to different units. People shaking hands, exchanging home addresses, waving each other goodbye. Have you got your UXPDR? Uh, That's your unexpired portion of the day's rations, which usually consisted of a cheese and bully beef sandwich. Yum, yum. And uh, 1,500 weight trucks moving off. It was very sad, actually. A very sad time. The breakup and disbandment of the unit. The colonel went. He was due for discharge as a Dorset family. Family? Farmer. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name. Uh, well, Worrell. Yeah, Worrell. Colonel Warren. I was senior major. We began to close in, grouped round Wilden. There was plenty of accommodation for the shrinking numbers. In the end, I was the only officer left. They'd all gone. Then my turn came. Sent the last radio message to brigade. I gathered up all the loose paper in the orderly room, stuffed it into bags, turned out the lights and locked the door. It was the 16th of February at 10.30 in the morning. And that's it. It's all. It was all over for the battalion. Uh, but it's not all over for us because what do we always feel is important when we do? We've gone. We've seen this group of lads through the war, through their training, through their war, through the terrible things that happened to. What do we have to do? In all fairness, flog a dead horse. Oh God, we've got to get them back into civilian life. Après la guerre. Après la guerre, Gary. Oh, so French. And you wanted to say something? Oh yes. Um, We've we've had a number of requests uh, to stop 
<laughs> yes, but we've also had some about some of the uh, earlier podcasts, and could we could we rerun them? So we've decided that going forward, we're going to do a sort of series of podcasts, and we're going to start uh, with a series of podcasts that we've already recorded and have been pre much uh, loved, cost much loved, and they're going to be on the subject of Gallipoli. And it'll run for a number Why of weeks. Why did we choose Gallipoli, Gary? Uh, because we're going to Gallipoli in May and uh, September, October of 2024. And people may want to join us once they hear our exciting Aww. podcasts. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, but so basically we're, we're going, and then after that, there'll be a series of new podcasts. So we're, that'll be how we do it now. A series of older reissues followed by a series of brand new, exciting podcasts. And the time we get of not being on a sort of weekly treadmill will allow us to perhaps spread our wings a bit from my latest book, whatever it is. And in a view of, in view of that, I wish to announce that we'll be doing a series on Sudan. Uh, oh, <laughs> what your latest book <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> no no we will throw it about we're very interested in the peninsula we might even finish the Hague podcast now Gary come on you're in the realms of fantasy and on that note cheers your, Pete your fantasies will leave this podcast you're my fantasy cheers oh, Pete god that'll have to be edited out now cheers Gary Barry Gary Barry <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?